As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, we've obviously done a lot of episodes about crypto, probably doing more and more to say the least, but there are still big aspects of the space. Like it's so sprawling and broad and maybe ill-defined that there's just a bunch of stuff we have yet to cover. Yeah. I mean, there's new stuff happening every day, but Certainly one of the big things that has been going on recently is this whole idea of Web3, Web3.0, NFTs, the idea of actually building new worlds, new spaces, new identities on blockchain technology. Yeah, exactly right. So we've done a lot about DeFi in the past, and maybe, maybe not, crypto will have uh, some disruptive effect unclear. But then there's this whole other aspect. And as you mentioned, like NFTs and DAOs and identity and de facto social networking. And I think a lot of people are excited about some alternative to, I guess what I would say is the web 2.0 tech giants. Like there's this Mm. anxiety about the power of a centralized company like Facebook or Twitter, and maybe some hope, even if it's still not perfectly articulated, of how something that's decentralized and based on crypto or Ethereum specifically could create new spaces, new forms, new ways for us to interact in a social manner that aren't tightly controlled by one one uh, one entity. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I think there's still a tension there, which we can discuss. But the idea of being able to have your identity on the web somewhere or have your assets in a wallet somewhere and then be in absolute control of them in the sense that, you know, you can move them, they're portable from one wallet to the other without actually having to necessarily like interact too much with the platform that you're using. Like there is something that is very attractive in that proposition. No, it's super cool. And like, you know, the idea of, say, being able to log into an app or website Mm. without, say, a password or username, just connect your wallet. It's pretty cool. It feels like really powerful. On the other hand, like, I guess I have to say I have a hard time getting to, okay, yeah, but when does this become a sort of genuine social interaction? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't. I can't tweet in Web 3.0 yet, as far as I know, or (laughs) no one else is there. Like, there's a bunch of social things that I do. That's when everything becomes real for you, right? When you can tweet it. Yeah. 
That's basically <laughs> the question. No, but yeah, literally, like all my friends are in Web 2.0, and I get in theory <laughs> that there's some Web 3.0 stuff that would allow us to interact, but like I don't know what it quite uh, what it, what it quite looks like. What what social relations look like in a Web 3.0 based uh world or whatever. Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, we have. Uh, I'm very excited about our guest today because I think he is someone who talks a lot about crypto. He's in crypto and explores crypto from this angle of like these tacit or de facto social networks. And he's thought a lot about this. He's a company that is building in this direction. I'm very excited. We're going to be speaking with Mike Demeray, the co-founder of Rainbow.me. It's a crypto wallet and uh, built around all this stuff, built for this stuff. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. What's up, Joe? What's up, Tracy? Big fan of the show. Excited to be here. Except how many uh, how many Dunkins have you had today so far? <laughs> I'm on my second Dunkin right now. I'm feeling good. I feel it's a good okay. number. You know, this is pretty early for me. I'm normally, you know, still up at the 5 a.m. What I'd miss tweet. You know what I mean? Normally, I'm the first reply. Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, this is big. You say GM at one in the afternoon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> GM. So. In all seriousness, you know what I think? I don't know if anyone's made this analogy before, but I kind of feel like Rainbow, Rainbow.me, your company, it kind of feels like the Tumblr of Web 3.0 or like it because Tumblr is like all the cool Brooklyn hipsters. That was like this very design oriented, ease of use, social networking, making blogging this thing. It's like rather than installing some boring WordPress template, just have this fun, cool way to interact. And social media, then, you know, it did pretty well. I guess it got bought out by Yahoo. What do you think about that analogy? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think other people, you know, sometimes they say, oh, it feels like Snapchat or, um, yeah, Tumblr mm-hmm. as well. I think that, yeah, I think that Rainbow stands out for being obsessively focused on on fun and delightful experiences. And, yeah, we're really a design first company. Um, but, yeah, I definitely see the analogy for sure. All the hip kids are on Rainbow. That's my impression. Yeah. <laughs> so when most people hear, you know, it's a beautiful app, I, I think like they don't necessarily get the importance of that or, or why you're so focused on the design aspect of it. But my understanding is you're very focused on it because in a world of wallets, in a decentralized world of wallets where people have the option to easily switch from one wallet to another. So you know, I use MetaMask, but if I wanted to, I could easily transfer everything over to Rainbow right now. Then like the thing that you're offering is basically that design experience. Is that right? Is that like the right way to think about how you're differentiating yourself in this market? 100%. What's crazy is about like with Web3, there's just simply no user moats. Right. So in the, in the yeah. past, like the reason you're, you're using Facebook is because of the network effects that Facebook has built up, you know, all of your friends are there and it's really hard for a challenger to come in and compete with those network effects. But with Ethereum, you know, and, and the portability of your of your of your keys, a user can eject from a wallet and start using another wallet in moments and there's nothing locking them in to a particular product. So yeah, it's it's our belief that basically the the product itself, which to us means design, is really the core differentiator between these products and really the only way to actually, you know, retain users. 
So I don't think anyone who's interacted with crypto apps, whether they be wallets, whether they be exchanges, whatever they are, like there is not a ton of design sense in the space <laughs> right now, to say the least. I think people complain about usability a lot. It's really scary. You like click one button and you're worried you're going to lose, uh, you know, expose your private key to everyone. What do you talk to us? Just like step back. Like, what do you see as like, what's your design philosophy? What do you see as the failures of the of existing crypto designers? And then what do you see as like how you think about solutions? Man, it sounds so, so cliche, but I, I think that people have been stuck in kind of an old paradigm of thinking where like, you know, they've been used to the existing crypto products and, you know, everyone in this space is such a big nerd that it's hard for them to, you know, imagine new styles, right? New, new styles of, mm. of products. What I mean by that is like, you know, MetaMask and other wallets kind of are all following the same like almost like utilitarian approach to the product. And no one has really tried to imagine it differently. It feels like, you know, there just hasn't been a real attempt. It's so cliche. I think that the the example I always point to is, y'all remember like Windows mobile phones? I think so. You know, I think so. Like, yeah. uh, it was like with the stylus, with the little start menu. It's like, you know, you can say that that's a smartphone, but really like, you know, the iPhone came around and even though on a, on a, a spec list, right? Oh, it's it's it looks like it hits all the same specs as a uh, as a window Windows mobile phone, but in reality, it was like the design of the iPhone really unlocked this new pr- type of product, right? It was like the, there's a before and after moment, um, and we sort of think about Rainbow in the same way. It's like functionally, you know, similar or nearly identical to other wallet products in its capabilities, but the the way that the product is packaged. We think it's it's more, you know, fun and accessible and, you know, less scary. But yeah, I mean, the way that we approach design in general is, first and foremost, we're trying to make something that, that my little brother would use, is, is always my, uh, you know, example user. Both my co-founder and I have little brothers and very much uh, Rainbow has been designed to kind of be something that they vibe with. So that's always been our gut check. So now that we've talked a little bit about the design, can we talk about what's actually on Rainbow or rather what you can actually like store and buy and trade? Because like obviously you can buy cryptocurrency, but you're also offering, um, you know, digital collectibles and NFTs and things like that. So what's the thinking behind that? Rainbow is an Ethereum wallet. And it supports all of the different types of assets that can exist on Ethereum. So that can be everything from ERC-20 tokens, some DeFi governance tokens, things like that, stable coins, um, things of that variety, as well as NFTs. And additionally, it also surfaces DeFi positions that you might have. So if you go and deposit your money in one of these platforms, we recognize that and essentially you know, throw a custom interface up. That lets you, you know, see more information about those particular positions, because, you know, it's like when you actually deposit your assets in these DeFi protocols, your assets are technically they leave your wallet. So it's like, you know, MetaMask is unaware of your money when you go and deposit it into one of these DeFi protocols. 
So it's like, you know, this happened to me on my first DeFi trade, like it just disappeared from mm. MetaMask. And I only, you know, what? I only like rediscovered it today. And I'm very, very happy that I managed to find it. Are you it. rich? Are you rich? <laughs> no, I only I, you make it. No, I was no, I was just trying to learn a little bit about yield farming. So I think I, I put in like $100 and got $200 out. So no, sadly, I, I haven't made it yet. You're going to make it. Well, so that uh, behavior is exactly what we think more people should be doing. We think that like the best way to learn about this stuff is to honestly just play around. The product Rainbow has been designed honestly to encourage that. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses, like yours, effectively manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. So I want to go back to something you said comparing the Windows phone versus the iPhone. So the Windows phone essentially started from the premise, I think, that the things that you would do on your computer, you could do on your phone, just smaller, just with a smaller screen and a sort of crappier keyboard. And but you still do the same things. You send emails. Maybe you try to like zoom in on a spreadsheet and surf the web or something like that. With the iPhone on paper, it's kind of the same thing, except the design of the iPhone opened up these new worlds. And we obviously know that in the iPhone era, we started using phones fundamentally different. New things emerged. And I thought that was interesting the way you stated. What is the sort of like new forms of interaction that can emerge? or that you envision, or how people use it when there is a sort of design and user-friendly wallet that people that actually brings delight? We actually think about crypto today as being really like a Trojan horse for getting um, public key cryptography into the hands of regular day, you know, average people. So right now, it's like the things attracting people to crypto is kind of, you know, speculative finance. And there's that's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But uh, in the future, what you can do once you have keys in your pocket, aka like a wallet in your pocket, is do more things like use it as your identity to various degrees. Um, so some of the more exciting things happening 
with that right now is, is yeah, like using your Ethereum wallet as a login. You know, if you've ever logged, you know, if you've ever used Uniswap, you'll notice that there's no login experience. You're simply connecting your wallet. That's been taking off, that user flow has been taking off a lot lately via the, this concept of token-gated communities, which is something popping on Discord these days. So, you know, on Discord, you can have a channel where, you know, people can join your channel only if they hold a token of a certain type. Hmm. So whether that's an NFT, whether that's uh, Unisox, whatever, basically you can have uh, communities online now that you have to, the contents of your wallet are your ticket to enter the community. So the I, I'd say the best answer to your question is, yeah, wallets kind of uh, being used more and more for closer to the, the concept of keys. Are we going to see, in your view, things that resemble what we think of as social networking in this model of my only login is my wallet. So maybe something that represents a photo sharing app or something that represents chat. Like what does, cause I think people intuitively, like I said in the beginning, they like this idea of social interaction that's not on some centralized company's servers. But can you talk a little bit more about what you envision that looking like? Yeah, I definitely think that it's going to be iterative, right? I don't think that crypto-centric social networking is ready to go. Right now, where we're at is basically people are really loving this idea of portable social profiles, which I guess is, is really a subset of social networking, right? So you don't have your entire social graph today on Ethereum. You don't have all of you know friends and followers, et cetera. But what you do have is essentially a user profile that you can share across applications, right? So you can have your avatar, your user, your user bio, you know, relevant links that you have, your Twitter, your GitHub, et cetera. You could fill that all in once on your ENS name and any application that would like to is able to then respect that data, right? And, and essentially use that as the, the pre-filled data in your profile on all of those various sites social networking will begin uh, begin to get eaten away by crypto. But I do think that there's fundamental things that need to happen before that's like really viable. So I have two questions on this. But, you know, if if I if I have tracyalloway.eth and I have this identity that's tied to Ethereum, how portable is that if, say, you know, suddenly Solana or I don't know, Dogecoin or something like that becomes like the de facto blockchain that the entire internet is using. Like, is my ETH identity, my Ether identity suddenly useless? And then secondly, I get that decentralization and portability is like one of the big offerings of this technology. But on the other hand, a lot of it is still going through a platform of one sort or another. And I just saw right before we started this podcast that um, OpenSea, uh, which sells NFTs, it just took down like some sort of alt-right NFT that someone had put up there. So there's still some sort of censorship and control um, because these things are still going through a platform of some sort. So I guess my question is, how decentralized is this really? Great question. So to the first part of your question, what happens if a, uh, you know, a contender blockchain, mm. you know, unseats Ethereum, and how to, what happens then? So that's a good question. Um, 
ENS, which is really what uh, I guess the community is rallying around and has, has seen the most adoption so far, it's actually um, designed and implemented in a way that is agnostic to Ethereum. All right. So, yeah. So basically, Solana could uh, read that data off the Ethereum blockchain. And even today with, with ENS, you are able to configure um, essentially any blockchain's address and have it attached to your ENS name. So ENS is actually less hyper Ethereum centric as it might seem. But in the end, it's our belief that Ethereum is here to stay, whether or not um, other platforms continue to see growth. That's that's secondary that we think that Ethereum is here to stay. And therefore, you know, building a profile on Ethereum is, you know, the most like conservative, long term centric place to do it. The second question is, as far as like, you know, how decentralized is this? What's nice about ENS and this whole concept of Ethereum as a login is, again, it puts the control in your hands and whether or not a third party application is actually decentralized or neutral, et cetera, that's up to them. And you as a user can choose to use that platform or not, right? So OpenSea definitely uh, has taken a strong approach with, you know, DMCA takedowns and I guess, you know, moderating the content on OpenSea, but in that, in no way does that actually take away from the power you have as, as a, as an ENS user. Yeah. So, so the data on your ENS name is actually decentralized and immutable. So what you can do is even, um, you can configure your ENS name and actually destroy the ability for that data to ever be updated into the future if you'd like. Right. So what that actually means is that you can you can kind of like set it in stone and truly make it you know unalterable if you if you so like. There's a number of these platforms, and they're, they're you know uh, you know OpenSea also has their own profile system, right? They have their own username system and their own bio system. So I don't know if they're the best example of a compatible platform with this portable profile concept. I'd say like Mirror and Uniswap are better examples of applications that you know are more tightly integrated with this idea of a portable profile. Can you actually explain Mirror a little bit? And so, I mean, you know, we're, I get, I, we're not even talking about Rainbow right now, but I feel like because the idea is that you want to be someone's entryway into this sort of decentralized, do you like the term Web3? I forget. You know, I think the, web, the term Web3 uh, was a brilliant idea. Um, I don't have any issues with it. Um, I think it's fine. All right. Honestly, it's pragmatic. You know, I think that perhaps to a certain demographic, certain, uh, you know, nomenclature maybe has been tainted, right, by bad preconceptions about, you know, use cases, et cetera, right? Like, is crypto just for drugs and terrorists right. or whatever? And and that's, you know, obviously a, a poor framing because it's that's just not the reality. So Web3 is nice in that regard. So what are we going to do in Web3? Because like, okay, I'm aware of like Mirror and it kind of seems like a little bit like Medium or Substack, but with crypto. But, you know, Medium and Substack seem to work well and they people are making money and finding ways to uh, get paid to, and not have to be on, you know, work for some major news operation. What is the, uh, what are we going to get out of Web3? So, I mean, it's a couple of things. Right now, Web3 is about having fun. It's about uh, the, having fun the same way that playing around on the early internet was very fun 
it really sparks your curiosity and it, and it kind of, yeah, it's all right now. Web three is about like remixing and having fun. Now, broadly, I'd say the big difference, uh, is, is the ability for content creators to, to monetize directly, uh, with their audience in a super streamlined and undisturbed way. As far as like, there's no middlemen. What is mirror mirror is a, uh, like a content platform. It's similar to medium. In the beginning, it was essentially kind of gated, uh, where it wasn't open to everybody. And it was instead something that you had to use tokens to vote on which writers, you know, were able to actually write on the platform. So I think that, I don't know, Web3, I'd say it's one, it's kind of this like fun, living kind of like democratic experiment in a lot of ways. So it's, it's as a user, you're able to kind of, it feels like you're participating in every step of the way. Can I ask another slightly technical question? Just going back to the notion of identity and, you know, digital assets, which are yours and tied to your wallet. My understanding is that you own the token, right? So you own basically a database entry that is somehow connected to a JPEG or somehow connected to your identity, how do you link, like, how do you actually link those two such that they're immutable and incontrovertible without having a third party have to do it? So, you know, if I buy, I don't know, one of those like ape NFTs, I know it's an ape NFT because it was listed on OpenSea or whatever. But once I own the data entry, what actually proves that it goes to that particular JPEG? Let me think. There's, there's two approaches to NFTs and the way that the data uh, is actually stored. So there's one path in which the content itself, right, the, whatever the graphic or media is, so that, that can actually be stored directly on chain using SVGs. So, you know, SVG as like an image format, you know, it's similar to PNGs, except it's uh, like lossless. So examples of NFTs that are completely on chain with SVGs are things like loot or blit maps, you know, avastars. And that's ideal because those are the most immutable and the most permanent. The other path of N uh, for storing NFT data is essentially keeping a record on Ethereum that points to the, the third party location of where that NFT data is stored, right? So, you know, for example, CryptoKitties, one of the original NFTs, the data for the CryptoKitties images are actually being stored on something similar to Amazon Web Services, right? Now, that might seem problematic, but in fact, there's actually a number of ways that that's really not that problematic. So say the CryptoKitties community, you know, so they all love the kitties. Everyone is obsessed with the kitties. If Dapper Labs, the creator of CryptoKitties, went out of business tomorrow and stopped paying their AWS bills, the community itself could easily recreate the entire thing. Meaning as long as one person or a couple of people have essentially like, you know, mirrored uh, or, you know, archived all of the images and the associated token IDs that they're uh, matched with, it'd be pretty trivial for the community to like, reboot the storage of that of that media type, right? So 
Yeah, I think that as far as like the permanence of of that data, that's something that people are very, very interested in. And there's a number of, you know, novel improvements that people are working on right now. You know, so it's like it's an ongoing kind of like R&D effort. So you just mentioned CryptoKitties, which reminded me of gas fees on Ethereum, because I remember back in the olden days, CryptoKitties used to like clog up the entire chain. And this is still an ongoing issue for anyone who's actually doing stuff um, on DeFi or, or trading. And, you know, you might put in a trade or you might say that you want to buy something and then suddenly your gas fee goes up and that's not much fun for everyone. So I'm wondering, given that your goal is basically to create an enjoyable wallet and to make the internet fun once again, how much of an impediment is the gas fee issue? Yeah, it definitely sucks how expensive gas is these days. So it is an impediment. It like meaning, you know, not everybody, if everyone in the world used Ethereum today, uh, it'd be bad, right? So it's almost like it is inherently not ready for everybody. There are a number of solutions um, that are very exciting that we think, you know, will s- largely solve that problem. You know, and, and the timelines on those things are anything from six months to a year and a half, right? Um, in the meantime, though, we really think that it's okay that, uh, you know, gas is expensive and we largely view this as perhaps a little bit of a, like a luxury experiment, right? That this is really like, this is experimental stuff. Maybe it's a little, a little bit of a luxury good as far as like the, the affordability of playing around with these things. It's our strategy to really focus on creating the most unbounded feature full product kind of at the expense of the affordability. Um, and the reason why is because once these technologies come along that allow Ethereum to scale more affordably, uh, our product will be able to easily adopt those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if we focused exclusively on um, making gas fees cheaper in Rainbow, it would actually mean that Rainbow would have a, an extremely you know, small subset of its current features um, because only so many things actually work on those uh, you know, layer twos, et cetera. Interesting. So we're of the belief that it's okay that uh, you know, gas is a little expensive and that we would rather have, yeah, like as many cool things to do in Rainbow as possible, you know, and if, if that potentially limits its, its immediate user base, we think that's okay. We're, we've been here for years, honestly. It's blown my mind the, uh, you know, the interest that Rainbow has gotten over the last year. Um, and I w- we, we wouldn't have expected this, this, you know, level of adoption to have happened so soon. So honestly, if anything, yeah, like we're excited and this is going, you know, way better than we thought. So the gas fees, you know, they'll go down. We're sure. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. 
Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. So I have a question about NFTs. So like, I'm a boomer, obviously, and by and large, when I look at uh, <laughs> when I look at like various NFT projects, I guess in some sense, the idea of like buying into like I don't know some collection of art and then having like a gateway to a Discord where maybe I can talk to people or do stuff with them, like I guess maybe it kind of seems cool in theory, but in practice, I have to say none of it appeals to me. And I'm not an NFT hater, and I'm not like oh I'm just gonna like right click and save that. Like I get. Okay, you own this. But like, I don't care about the apes. I don't care about the kitties. I don't care about, it's not my thing. What is going to be like a type of NFT thing that, well, what am I going to like? Like, when's the thing going to, when's there going to be something that sort of appeals to normies like myself? So I think that, yeah, NFTs, it's either you kind of get them or you don't. I think that, well, Joe, are you a collector of anything, I guess? Or no, do you identify guess, as a collector? Yeah. No, I guess that's the thing. Yeah, so it's an NFT. I think that... But I like the idea, but but I but I like the, like, when, when people talk about, like, a community, or it's like, yeah. oh, you buy this and you're part of some scene, like, I guess, like, you know, like, oh, the apes, like, they hang out with each other, IRL, like, I guess I kind of get that in theory. I don't like, you know, it's not, they're not my scene. That's fine. It's a different scene. But like, you know, I don't hate the idea of like a scene per se or like buying into some community. I just haven't seen anything that like looks very fun to me. Yeah. I think that NFTs are just like crypto in general, which I find to be an asset that almost comes with that scene built in, right? Like from the beginning, crypto assets tend to kind of evoke almost a religious zeal from people, right? Where it's like, you are now, you've bought into this thing and you have this vision for the future of that thing. And it, it, you know, it comes with it, uh, you know, ideology, it comes with it, whatever belief system. And I think that NFTs are largely similar to that. NFTs will be a part of people's lives, whether they realize it or not, in the sense that, you know, the ENS names that we were talking about before, um, you know, those are actually NFTs. That's that's how they're that's how they functionally work is that they that they are NFTs, you know, whether or not, Joe, you'll be collecting cartoons, you know, who cares? Right. Like, I think that other so there's other things you can do with NFTs as well, purely from a functional perspective. For example, there's like Rainbow's interested in um, potentially doing, you know, a KYC NFT. 
right? Um, where essentially once you've been KYC'd, you know, to access our fiat on-ramp, we, we could issue an NFT that says, hey, this is a real human who has gone through the KYC process. Um, and third parties could use that token um, the, or the existence of it, for example, you know, to unlock further functionality in their app, right? So you might have some feature in your app and you really don't want it to be uh, botted, right? You don't want it to be like, you know, someone in an automated way to take advantage of it. Um, and you could use the KYC NFT to, to only let, you know, humans through, right? That whole concept was really, you know, pioneered by this company Wire a few years ago, but no one ran with it. NFTs, yeah, you really have to be a collector of something to really get them, I think, um, or at least in the current trends. So what's the deal? Are people really paying $105,000 for a pair of socks? <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are paying a lot of money these days for the unisocks. Yeah, can you explain that? Why is the price of unisocks? What is it and why is it $105,000 for a pair of socks, if I'm reading this right? Yeah, uh, so unisocks are somewhat similar to NFTs and really they're collectibles. Right. Really, that's what an NFT is. And that's what Unisocks are. Unisocks are instead what's called an ERC-20 token. So they're more of like, you know, a currency than uh, an NFT is. Um, but yeah, what Unisocks are was this really silly experiment done by the Uniswap team back in 2019 um, as a demonstration of the Uniswap protocol. Uh, uh. So what Unisocks are is basically like merch for Uniswap, the, the company. It's, it's branded socks. And what they did was they created 500 pairs of socks and then 500 uh, socks tokens um, and put them on Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange. Right. Then anyone in the world can buy and trade the socks token. And at any time, you can take one full socks token and redeem it, meaning it gets burned. Uh, and then the Uniswap team will mail you a pair of the socks. So <laughs> that whole system ends up with something looking like Kind of uh, the way that, you know, it essentially creates something close to Yeezys, right? Or kind of like Supreme, where you have this right, like, right. limited edition run product that, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, you know, memorabilia. But what's cool about Unisox is like, instead of, you know, buying, you know, Yeezys and then sitting on them and hoping that the price appreciates and then like having to mail the physical box. Uh, what's nice with Unisox is you can just trade the token back and forth. You know, if you're there to purely speculate on the price of that thing, instead of having to custody the box, you can just trade the token back and forth and the box sits, you know, where it is. Right. So it's, it's a really interesting experiment in kind of like bringing markets or making markets more uh, efficient uh, in, you know, non-traditional markets. Right. I think the closest analogy to Unisox is like high end sneakers and that whole culture. You know, it's it's something that crypto OG is like, you know, use as a status symbol, I guess. Yeah. So just on this note, I, I saw a really great description of NFTs today, and I wish I could remember where it was from, but I've forgotten. But the basic argument was that like forever or like throughout all of history, there have been rich people who have a lot of money that they can spend on whatever they want. And traditionally, those things that they've been buying have been status symbols like, I don't know, watches or sneakers or fancy clothes or bags or whatever. And now there's a whole different class of people who have a lot of money who've made a lot of money out of the crypto space. And for them, the status symbol is now NFTs, like that's the thing that shows that 
you know, who you are and how much money you've made. And it's basically sort of like digital bragging rights for nerds. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to, I don't know, it's like you meet a hipster and they're like, yeah, I liked that band five years ago, right? And it's like <laughs> if you own some of these NFTs and you've had them for years, I mean, you could have bought CryptoPunks a few years ago for like $100, yeah. right? And they're now, I don't even know, like 60 ETH or something. Uh, you know, like Joe, I'm sitting, you know, my day is mostly sitting on Twitter, right? And, you know, uh, how do you express yourself on Twitter or in these digital places? And uh, NFTs are a really great way to do that. I don't exclusively tie them to like wealth or status. I think of it more as self-expression to a degree. But yeah, I mean, I think I think honestly that they're just like fun collectibles. Um, you know, some people collect anime dolls or, you know, baseball cards, like whatever. And uh, yeah, NFTs just like are a new thing. So speaking of NFTs, and this actually relates to Tracy's question about, you know, will Ethereum be the chain that wins out? Literally, while we were recording this episode, I see that uh, former First Lady Melania Trump is launching an NFT uh, project, (laughs) and it's on the but it's on the Solana blockchain. And also, I saw last night, Michael Jordan and his son, they're also launching some sort of like fan experience NFT thing. And on the Solana blockchain. And I guess it current temporarily, at least, you know, you mentioned like gas fees on Ethereum, like you think it'll be solved, but temporarily other chains like Solana are much cheaper. And furthermore, I think like if you're like just like a Jordan fan or Melania Trump fan, you probably don't care too. You might not be that much interested in like, you know, various aspects of decentralization and other pluses or minuses. You just want to like have a cheap way to buy something from a celebrity that you like how much of a threat is like you know all these people are just like yeah let's just put it on the cheap chain how do you think about like that competition and the sort of like threat that poses to ethereum as the scaling and as the layer two uh uh solutions uh you know they're still not really still not really built or widely available yet there has been some interesting traction happening over in the world of solana one of the things to consider when assessing one of these chains is simply the ecosystem itself. One of the, the biggest values about you know Web3, and so it's like, I have an Ethereum wallet. The nice thing about an Ethereum wallet is that it's compatible with so many different things. It's like all of the assets within it are interoperable with each other, and all of the applications um, you know, targeting Ethereum can interact with those assets. And you know if most of your assets are over here in Ethereum, but then you wanted to go buy that Michael Jordan NFT over on Solana that actually creates this like weird fragmentation where now it's like you have assets over there, assets over here that are incompatible with each other. I think that there's, there's an appeal right now for these systems that have cheaper gas fees, but you know, it's not truly just about decentralization. That's not the, like, you know, the only trade-off there's like the reliability aspect as well. And you have to think like, you know, which one of these systems will definitely exist in five or 10 years from now? I guess as you sort of implied also the interoperability so that uh, in theory, you want different NFTs on the same chain to create the possibility that somehow they could interact with each other or work. And so there's sort of like a, Correct. a network effect. Yeah, exactly. There's a network effect there. And um, I'm not a crazy maximalist or anything. If anything, I honestly kind of consider myself like, you know, approach this stuff pretty conservatively. 
when we started Rainbow, people were trying to pay us to integrate various chains, right? Like, why don't you support EOS? Why don't you support Tezos, et cetera? And it would have been a bad idea to have supported those things out of the gate because, you know, it, it comes to the detriment of the product, right? It's just like additional stu- a scope that you have to, have to add. It, it takes away from your focus. There's other chains that are cheaper that are more compatible with Ethereum, right? That actually, that, that like, you know, respect the interoperability. So things like Polygon, things like Arbitrum, et cetera. And th- we think that that's where uh, a lot of this like more like, you know, low value type of right. activity is going to happen. When I say low value, all I mean is like, you know, low dollar amount, right? Where, you know, all of, you know, if you're paying half a million dollars for a crypto punk, the transaction fee is really not something you're, you're thinking about. Whereas if you're talking about, you know, $25 NFTs from a major brand that you are a fan of, um, you know, that activity, we see that more likely happening on, yeah, one of these chains with cheaper fees. But yeah, I mean, we're just really big believers in the network effects of Ethereum, which is something that I feel like is under discussed. Yeah, I mean, all these right. other chains like Solana are really starting their network effects from from zero, which is, you know, totally fine. It's just that it's going to take a lot for these other competing platforms to really build up the ecos the same like you know level of ecosystem that uh ethereum has right like how many solana wallets are there right well in the world of ethereum it's like as a user you can choose from 10 wallets right you know obviously rainbow's number one but you actually have a number of pretty solid alternatives whereas some of these other chains you really don't have anything to choose from, right? There might be only be one platform for, you know, uh, buying and selling NFTs, right? Whereas in Ethereum, there's like already a competitive, you know, ecosystem. So yeah, I don't know. I think that like big brands are attracted to some of these other chains as well because of like uh, their ability to handhold them through the experience. So you mentioned before the amount of interest that Rainbow has gotten. And I'm curious how much interest you've gotten from venture capital and potential funders. Cause like, it just feels as if there's so much money pouring into the space right now. And it almost feels like people are keen to buy anything related to the crypto market. Um, you know, regardless of how well it's designed or how usable it is. So has that been your experience? Yeah. Uh, they are very thirsty right now. There's been a lot of attention. I think that uh, all of a sudden this year, people who hadn't been paying attention realize that the stuff is real and not going away. You know, people are, you know, I got VCs in my DMs, you know, pretending like they're willing to quit their job to come join the Rainbow team. But then, you know, halfway through the conversation, they switch it up and they're like, hey, actually, nah, can we invest? And I'm like, what are you talking about? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of VC attention. What's crazy though is that Rainbow in particular, we had very little interest from kind of the crypto OG uh, money, right? Like the big crypto funds really didn't understand Rainbow and broadly have like misunderstood the wallet product and the wallet opportunity. So Rainbow's raised money mostly from uh, consumer social investors. But yeah, I mean, the, the space is definitely heating up. I think that like, you know, people are trying to get us to raise more money right now. Um, we're not interested. People, you know, are trying to acquire us right now. We're not interested. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely a good time uh, to raise money, I'd say. So can we just go on this further? I think it's really interesting what you said about 
VCs who want to invest pretend that they want to be employees of uh, Rainbow, and then they, then they change the conversation. Can you, is this like a sort of broader phenomenon where startups or projects in the crypto space find themselves more starved for labor than they are capital? Ergo, the way to get your foot in the door is to pretend to be a worker. Honestly, I think that this experience is pretty unique to me because I've kind of, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, part of my recruiting tactics has been uh, to, you know, to really turn it into a meme. I think that that's kind of what's happening here is, you know, I do think that labor is the bottleneck and not capital. Honestly, there is an abundance of capital. Most of it is undifferentiated capital. Yeah, from, you know, the labor side of things, there is a huge talent drought. Um, but more and more people are jumping ship from Fang and, you know, joining the space, um, which is really exciting. But yeah, I think that I kind of asked for this whole like, you know, VC trickster games. I kind of brought that upon myself with my recruiting memes. <laughs> I was going to ask when you tweeted that you were looking for like CIA agents um, with psychological warfare experience because you want them to be able to create high potency memes. How serious is that? I mean, yo, I don't know. I heard Reality Winner uh, is out of jail or whatever. So, you know, if she's looking for a job, she can hit me up. No, I mean, listen, I think that memes are fundamental to crypto. I think that it's honestly what keeps people involved is just like it's crypto. Twitter is one of the funniest places. And yeah, I mean, we have somebody on the team today whose title, you know, it's like our official job offer to them. Their title is memes, et cetera. Right. So it's like memes to, uh, are a super vital part of building in crypto. Um, it's essentially our flavor of marketing, whether, you know, any CIA agent is, uh, you know, looking to leave the agency for a career change. I mean, we're more than happy to talk. It's like memes are a skill. You have to be good. And uh, some people out there are playing some real good 4D chess and uh, with the memes. And, you know, we respect that. Yeah. So if you've got the skills. So I have two questions. One is very short and one's a little more substantive. The very short one is, are you sitting still on the stalwart.eth and tracyalloway.eth? And can, do you, do you have I those? have both of those. Oh, yeah. You said you would send it to me. I'll, you know, Tracy, I got to get my assistant to get that over to you. I'm so sorry. But yes, I have <laughs> been keeping those safe for you guys for a Thank long you. time. I knew that someday you would want them. Thank you. I, I do want one. <laughs> and I do, too. The other more substantive question is, you know, there's this other question about Web3, and I've seen people debate it, which is like whether all of the services that we sort of think about with respect to Web2 will eventually be like on a blockchain, like Uber on a blockchain, where it's a DAO and there's a token and no company, or Airbnb with a token, et cetera. Is that something that you envision? I think in the far off future, that's definitely, you know, an inevitability. I think that the biggest obstacle there is actually regulation. Personally, I think that that stuff is, is a little bit of a pipe dream today for two reasons. One is technical and the second is regulatory. I think that there's a lot of improvements needed to the tooling and infrastructure available to DAOs to actually enable that. Um, like using a DAO today is pretty clunky um, and would not scale to the size of like, you know, imagine if every Uber driver wanted to vote on some sort of company policy today, that would be really difficult to do via a DAO. But I think that there's merits to the idea of new corporate structures enabled by tokens. 
that's honestly how I've thought about this from the beginning, right? Is like there can, you know, this technology can honestly enable like a new renaissance in capitalism where uh, there's all entirely new corporate structures available to everybody, right? So whether you're a small business, um, whether you're trying to create some sort of like, you know, large network like Uber, there's advantages to the flexibility of uh, like, you know, it's like remixing your corporate structure with a click of a button, right? Like doing that today is incredibly difficult. Like, you know, changing around how, you know, your corporate structure works today is like difficult. It requires lawyers. And honestly, if you're like a small business, you don't really know how to do that. So I think that 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 is definitely within our future. But I think that, you know, our politicians don't really know how to use email today. So I think that in reality, there needs to be, uh, you know, it's going to take some time for regulatory clarity to happen on kind of like real world DAO, you know, experiments. Mike, that was awesome. That was really fun. I'm looking forward to having uh, us getting our youth handles. <laughs> and uh, thank you for coming on Outlook. Thanks, Mike. That was fun. Gang, thank you. Have a good morning, GM. GM. Tracy, I, I really like that conversation. I was thinking about our recent episode that we did with uh, Matt Wong of Paradigm. And I do kind of think that like the more compelling crypto visions that you hear are sort of like what I see, the parallels that I see is like organic and unique to crypto. In other words, like the, the models where it's like, oh, this is going to replace X or Y or, you know, I don't know, like DeFi, like, I don't know whether that's what's going to happen there. But the idea of just like things that are like totally new to crypto, like some sort of like token gated community, even though there's not any community that I really want to be part of that I've seen or something related to interesting art with NFTs. Like I have to say, like the idea of like new stuff, new is like is uh, seems compelling to me, even if I don't know what it is. Yeah, I think that's right. And also um, Mike's idea of like just making the internet more fun once again. Yeah. I, think, I think that's a big part of it because I think there are a lot of people who are maybe in their 30s or late 20s now who can remember what it was like, you know, when they first started going online. Um, maybe they were on something like AOL or Netscape or whatever. And it was, it was yeah. genuinely a fun time. And you were discovering new things, um, chatting with new people. I don't people. think people in their twenties remember AOL. Oh, okay. I don't know. I, I'm getting my <laughs> so, like timeline mixed up. I remember AOL, but, but anyway, yeah, I think yeah, like, yeah. I think what's nice about Mike's approach and others like him is they're not taking it so seriously as some of the maximalists who are yeah. like we're creating a brand new financial system with its own ideology this is about actually creating things that people want to use yeah and you know i loved his point in the beginning about the difference between the iphone and the windows phone and mm. it's like we didn't really know you know it's like the first iphone like didn't like there wasn't even an app store at the time but i think everybody sort of intuitively recognized that yeah because of this new, like, highly usable phone that it would, like, open up these new possibilities. Like, it would create new things. And so I sort of see that, like, what he is saying is, like, if you get design right and if you um, create the sort of, like, just a better experience, 
then maybe like these new things that people want to do that aren't the same as just like, oh, we're like shrinking a spreadsheet with the Windows phone, like that will that will open it up in some way. Yeah, or just being able to see where your like DeFi Ethereum has got to. That would be yeah. useful. And in a decentralized identity, like the idea of like, you know, we both like sort of played around with Uniswap, the idea of being able to like log into an app with a wallet as opposed to oh i'm gonna like set up my name and password and mother's maiden name and all that stuff the idea of just being able to do that with a name or uh, a .eth handle or a wallet is like pretty interesting and potentially seems like powerful and i could see that actually appealing to a lot of people yeah i agree all right um well that was a fun conversation so shall we leave it there yeah that was a good one let's leave it there okay this has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Mike Demeray, the co-founder of Rainbow.me. His handle is at Mike Demeray. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.